my family became citizens of the U.S. when I was 14. Um, I remember the day because it was the spring uh, semester of my freshman year of high school, and we spent the day over at the federal building in Newark. And um, I remember we stood outside on this long line, and then we went inside, and my parents um, entered a, a smaller room and answered questions on U.S. history. And after answering, answering the questions correctly, they stepped out uh, into a large group of people where they um, made an oath of allegiance to the U.S. Um, and on that day, what happened was, for me, a new narrative was, was conferred on me, right? I was now bound into this country's history, um, its previous successes and victories, and also its sins, um, some of which are, have been laid bare in recent weeks. Um, but not only was I now included in this country's history, I was also invited to participate in this country's future. That's what it means to be a citizen. And I start there because this morning we continue on our series on the book of Philippians. And we talk, we're talking about um, what are these gospel promises, even as we live apart, that um, social distance can't steal. And this morning I'm talking about um, a new citizenship. Uh, we see Paul writing about this citizenship. Um, and so we'll take this morning into two parts. The first part, a single command, and then the second part, a river that runs through. A single command and a river that runs through. Um, the letter of, of, uh, to the Philippian church was written to the city of Philippi. And that's significant because 90 years before Paul wrote this letter, there were two significant battles that took place. And these battles had, um, had long-term implications for the city of Philippi. So the victor of those battles, King Octavian, decides to refound the city after winning um, as a Roman military colony. And that's significant because it's far away from Rome. And historians point to two reasons for, for why he did this. One, from a uh, pragmatic standpoint, they think that by doing this, it allowed him to alleviate some of the population pressures of Rome. Rome, there was already so many people living in the city. What you, um, the last thing that, that this emperor needed was a bunch of military veterans, right, who were probably not as afraid of him as others were, um, living in the city and potentially causing trouble. And so what he wanted to do was he just wanted to alleviate some of those population pressures. And so he, he founds this new colony far away. Um, but not only that, um, by founding this military colony, he ensures that there are people far away from the capital who are living out the vision of what it means to be a Roman citizen. Right, so now in this, in this um, city of Philippi, even though it's physically distant, you have a people who are loyal um, and who have pledged allegiance to the emperor of Rome. And so not only are these military veterans, they're loyal. All of the folks who were living there before these, these battles have, are now part and become Roman citizens. And what we learn from history is that in the years following this major event, um, the city of Philippi was very, very proud of their Roman citizenship. Um, they, 
Um, they were now connected to the narrative of Roman dominance and strength, right? The military, geopolitical, and economic strength of Rome was now part of their own narrative. Not only that, but um, one of the great innovations of Rome, Roman law, was now um, the rules by which they were governed by, and they were proud of that. It was a vision of, of life together in ethics that, um, that was now a part of their own story. It was something they took incredible pride in, the fact that they and this city far from Rome were Roman citizens. It's in the middle of that context that Paul writes this letter. And um, in verse 21 of this, of this first chapter, there are two important words um, that commentators agree sort of point to what the thesis could be for this whole book, um, for this whole letter to the Philippian church. Um, and, and it's bound up in, in these two Greek words, and the Greek words are monon politeiu este. Monon politeiu este. And um, commentators would say that this first part, monon, it's almost as though in the middle of this first chapter, Paul is writing and he's saying, monon, just one thing is the paraphrase. Just one thing. And then what follows after that is that one thing that he wants to highlight. He says one thing, politeiueste, which is live as citizens. And so for the church in Philippi who grew up as Roman citizens, very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens, he's needling them and saying, now live as citizens. Now, what does that mean for them? Does it mean that they're supposed to be upstanding Roman citizens? They're supposed to be a moral example? In chapter 3, verse 20, and Paul flushes it out a little bit more and he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So he's saying, look, just one thing, live as citizens of heaven. And if you're like me and you grew up in the church, often we could hear that as a purely future hope, right? It's, it's a way of saying, look, ultimately, um, no matter what you do here and now, um, all of your hope is contained in, in, in the future and um, and whether you do good or whether you do bad, ultimately you die anyway and you go to heaven. It's a purely future hope. But what we have to understand uh, for these first hearers and first readers of this letter in, in the church of Philippi, they would not have heard it as a purely future hope. It would have had great um, present implications because they knew from, from the beginning of their lives that to be a Roman citizen had great, um, had great present implications for them. It was a source of pride, and also it gave them a vision for ethics and how they lived in the present. And so what they understand Paul is saying is, look, um, Paul is writing to them and saying, I, I know that you take great pride in the fact that you're connected to a great city of Rome with a powerful leader in the emperor, but now you have to understand that as a, a believer in Jesus, you are connected to an even greater city the city of heaven, and now you're even con connected to an even greater king, and that's the Lord. And so this would have been um, a challenge for them to reorient their lives around not their Roman citizenship, but their heavenly citizenship. And what Paul is saying is, you were from a young age taught that you were supposed to live in Philippi as a colony of Rome, but now as people who follow Jesus, living in the way of Jesus, you're, you are to be a colony of heaven. 
And we pray that, right, in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. And what Paul is trying to tell these believers is you are to live as a colony of heaven. You are to live um, with a vision for the beauty and justice and joy of heaven. You're supposed to live with that here in the present. And that's the single command. Um, You're supposed to live as citizens of heaven. But what exactly does that mean? How do we live with that vision and what does that look like for us now? Um, And the second part of of this morning, I want to talk about not only of a single command, but I want to talk about a river that runs through. Um, We struggle with this picture of how do we live as a colony of heaven now because we don't have a, a vision of what heaven looks like, right? Um, we're too caught up in the pictures of clouds and angels with harps and things, and we don't have a striking vision of what it means to be connected to the heavenly city. Um, G.K. Beale and Mitch Kim, they wrote a book about this end time sort of vision, and they say that um, the heavenly city needs to be a, um, a vision of commander's intent. Commander's intent is a military word that I won't pretend to know too much about, but what they say is that um, a commander's intent distills a whole battle plan into a simple statement that gives soldiers freedom and flexibility to improvise without getting off track. And they say that a vision of the heavenly city is our commander's intent. We live with that vision orienting our our actions. And... Um, I want to talk about a single feature of this heavenly city that we see from two visions of Scripture. I want to talk about the river that runs through this city. Um, Let me start with with the first vision. In Ezekiel, we see that prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple, a great temple. It it comes at the end of of his book, and um, there's this vision of this great temple. It's, it's larger than Solomon's temple, and it's perfect in dimensions, almost too perfect. Um, it's clearly not an, an earthly temple of, of any sort because the dimensions, um, they're too perfect that they don't give reference to any sort of physical site. Right? When you're building a building, um, the dimensions correspond to, to an actual site. And, and if the dimensions are too perfect, then that means it doesn't, it doesn't have any reference point to any physical site, but it's this perfect grand temple. And what's important about the temple is, is from under the temple, there's, there's a river that runs from this temple. And uh, what's important to know about temples in the ancient Near East is that they're not just religious functional buildings, right? Uh, temples were meant to contain the presence of God. And, and the temple was this this private residence of, of the deity that those worshiping um, claim to be living there. And what, what Ezekiel sees is that the Lord res, was residing in this temple, and from this temple, a river was flowing out of it. And the way that it's described is this river, everything it touches would come to life. But not only that everything it touches would come to life, but um, if you remember a few weeks ago, Devlin talked about how in, in ancient Near East culture, a sea was uh, large bodies of water, oceans, seas, were, were, were seen as um, images of chaos. They were unruly. Most of these ancient Near East populations were agricultural people, and so the, the seas were unfamiliar, unfamiliar to them. 
Um, and what we find in this picture in Ezekiel is that when the river touches the sea, the sea is transformed into fresh water. There's something about this river that whenever it touches things that are chaotic, it stills the chaotic. And not only that, um, we find that this river, on, on each side of the banks, trees would come up as, as the river would touch the banks. And, and it says that there's fruit from the trees that will be for food and leaves will be for healing. Leaves will be for healing. And the whole picture of a river with, with trees clearly points back to the perfection of Eden, but it also points forward to some future hope. In the New Testament, John, when writing in the book of Revelations, um, he, he envisions another heavenly city. He envisions the heavenly city, and there's a river that runs through this city in Revelation 22. And um, in the same way, a river runs through the city. On each side of the river is a there's a tree of life, and it says that the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. This river signifies the presence of God flowing and healing and restoring everything it touches. Um, when Jesus was, was talking to his disciples, um, there's this picture that, that John writes about earlier um, in the Gospels, and he says, on the, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up. And he said, let anyone who's thirsty come and drink. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is the passage that Q and Eunice read earlier in the service. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And the question to ask this morning is, what would this look like for you? If rivers of living water would flow out of you, and still the chaos in your life. Um, what Jesus says is this, the rivers that he was talking about was actually the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God will flow out from the presence of God and it will heal and restore the broken things in life. I'm reminded recently of a pastor in the city that talked about, you know, even as we push for justice and economic, political, um, and legal systems, there will still be large gaps, still large gaps to prevent people to flourish. Legislation often doesn't lead to reconciliation. And where the church steps forward is um, here, what we see that the rivers of, of the presence of God were always meant to fully heal and restore. And our purpose as citizens of this heavenly kingdom Having access to those rivers now, we have access to those rivers now, are meant to release those rivers of flourishing out into the world. That as we abide and receive the presence of the living God, that we enter into spaces and the power of the Spirit will transform the chaos in the world around us. That's the promise. Even as we are all individually far away and physically distant from each other in this season, what we have access to is this river of the heavenly city here and now. Um, and often we, we just take this for granted. And so this is what I pray for you, that you would believe in Jesus and the rivers of living waters will flow out into your life, transforming your heart and then flowing out of you to still the chaos all around you. And the greater the chaos, 
the greater the, the amount of these rivers flowing out of you. Um, let's pray now. Father, we pray that you would fill us with the rivers of your presence, that your spirit would dwell in us and will flow out of us, and we will see a transformation in the world around us, that we will be um, caused to to live as citizens, um, releasing your presence into the underserved, under-resourced, portions of our city into the chaos of our homes, uncertainty of our future, would we sense that your presence is strong um, and would we rely on your spirit like we never have before, knowing that it's not our individual capacity, but it's the power of your rivers flowing through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.